I'm so excited you're here today. If you've been with us, you know we're in a teaching series on the book of Isaiah. So turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles and get to Isaiah chapter 13. We're going to be in Isaiah 13 today. If you haven't been with us, I can catch you up. God has been speaking through the prophet Isaiah, chapters 1 through 12, and the children of God, it's about 700 years B.C., the people of God, whoo, they're in trouble. They're scared. They're looking around like, like national superpowers are threatening them. Assyria is bearing down on them. Babylon is in the way off in the east, Egypt to the south. They don't know who to fear, who to trust. They're tempted to form these unholy alliances, basically break the covenant promises of God because it looks like Egypt can bail you out, right? Or it looks like Babylon can bail you out, or Assyria. And God's telling them, trust me. And so he gets to the end of chapter 12. We've looked at that. In Isaiah 13, he takes 14 chapters from 13 all the way to 27, and he surveys every known superpower. He starts furthest in the east he can think of, Babylon. In the ancient Near East, this has been the furthest parts of the known world. And he goes all the way across, Philistia, Moab, Assyria, uh, uh, Arabia, Jerusalem itself, all the way to the west. He ends up in Tyre, and Tyre's, um, they had a colony way out in uh, 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 Tarshish, which is like modern-day Portugal. So from the far west to the far east, he surveys all of these nations, and he's trying to show them these potential nations cannot save you. These potential saviors, I know they look tempting, don't put your trust in them. And he names, he goes one by one, and he talks about how he's going to judge each one. So don't hitch your wagon to Babylon or to Egypt or to Assyria or whatever. They're going down. He goes through, this is 14 chapters long. Now, 14 chapters is way too much to take on in one sermon. So we're going to do it in two. We're going to do seven chapters today, okay? Put the pedal to the metal. And then we're going to do seven chapters, hopefully, next, next Sunday. Here's a little taste of what this is like. This is what you're going to experience in these 14 chapters. Just, just look at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 13, right, right? Remember, each one is going to be a judgment on the nations that God's people are supposed to overhear and listen to and take note of. Okay, you'll see. This is what it's like. They're all like this. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, on a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be ill in anguish, anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be a flame. Do, do you ever get in your car in the morning and uh, you, you forgot that the night before you had the radio cranked at like full volume? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You're driving home from rock, this, from like a revival and you're, um, and it's just like, like cranked to full volume and, but, but then you pulled in, you didn't think a thing about it but then in the peaceful quiet of the next morning you get out to your car and you turn, has anyone had this experience? You turn it on and ah! Right now, imagine, imagine that, but you can't turn it down, and the doors are locked, and you can't escape the car. That's happening for 14 chapters. 
That, that, that's what you have here. This goes on for 14 chapters. He pronounces these judgments on the nations. As one commentator said, at first sight, these 14 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy can appear to be quite uninviting for the contemporary preacher. <laughs> you think? The issues seem to belong to history past. Some of the meanings are opaque, if not obscure. Most of the material can appear to be unremittingly doom-laden. It's hardly surprising that most contemporary Christians will never have heard a sermon from this part of Isaiah's book. It is true, I, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached from Isaiah 13 to 27. I hope to hear one today, but we'll see. But what, like, what's going on here? I mean, chapter after chapter, nation after nation. How do you... How do you get through this? It's like we need a path through this, some way to understand and unlock why are these chapters here? I'll tell you why. If you get lost as we travel from 13 to 27, again, we're gonna try to do seven this week, seven next Sunday. If you get lost along the way, go back to why these chapters are here. Israel, you're not gonna find what you're looking for in Babylon and all that she represents. You're not gonna find that security in Assyria and all that she represents, or in Egypt, or in Tyre. You're gonna find security. Where, where is security found? That's the guiding question. If you're a note taker, write that down. Where is security found? That is the guiding question. These chapters were given to convince the heart of the people of God in the face of great human opposition that despite all that you can see with your eyes, behind the scenes, God is the Lord of the world, he's the Lord of history, and security is found only in him. Now here's why this has everything to do with us. The, the ancient people of God needed to hear that. The modern people of God needed to hear that. Don't worry, we won't go through nation by nation and look at each of these oracles. What we'll do is we'll take a representative sampling. Is security found in here? And what this nation represents is security found here and in what this nation represents. Take, for example, our, let's get right to it. Is, is security found? These are the same potential candidates. Is security found in Babylon, the proud? So if you're a note taker, eventually, we'll do two this week, maybe two next week. So just, if you're really good, you'll bring the same page of notes back next week and just make it one continuous page. First candidate, is security gonna be found in Babylon, the self-exalting? Now, before we dismiss it, Babylon's got a lot going for it. Its military power is increasing. Though right now when Isaiah writes this, I, Assyria is the real bad bully on the block. But Babylon's coming up. and every, I mean, dude, nobody wants to. I mean, don't you want to catch the stock when it's about to skyrocket? I mean, do, do, hey, don't sleep on Babylon, man. Don't miss the come up. Babylon is really, they're about, to, I mean, they're culturally relevant. They've got a lot of influence. Remember the hanging gardens and all the literature? I mean, Babylon's got it going on. So can we find what we're looking for in Babylon? Culture? Pride? In fact, Babylon, well, let, 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 let's just you see what God's about to do to Babylon. We just read it in verses one through eight. He's gathering this army. He happened to be using at that time the Medes and the Persians, but here's what's gonna happen. Verse 11, I will punish, no, don't, don't hitch your wagon to Babylon, why? I will punish the world for its evil. Okay, what, what evil has Babylon done? The wicked for their iniquity. What's the evil and iniquity of Babylon? Here it is. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. There it is. Don't miss this. What brought judgment of God onto the people of Babylon is the exact same thing that invites the judgment of God today. Pride. 
It's pride. Don't miss this. Pride. Babylon is literally, it's ancient roots, it's literally built on pride. Remember the ancient roots of Babylon, go back to Genesis 11. Do you remember this? The Tower of Babel, where they're trying to build a monument to human glory. They're trying to have so much influence and glory that they can ascend all the way to the heavens. Pride. Pride is an easy sin to miss. In fact, in this day and age, it's almost a praised sin, isn't it? When someone has a lot of influence, a lot of glory, we, we follow that, we like that. We buy into that. Pride is when, you know, Philippians says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is Philippians 2, 3. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. We don't do that. We consider ourselves better than others. Now, I, I'm not talking about the kind of pride where, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's a sense in, oh, you know, like a child who's proud of his science project. You know, she worked really hard on this math project, and now she's done a good job. She's proud of it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about dreaming, or we need dreamers, and we need that kind of, I'm talking about the pride that looks at God and says, scoot over, God, I believe you're in my seat. I don't want you to be the boss of my life. I don't want to come under your rule and authority. I want self-rule. I want to be the one to decide what's right and wrong for me. That is what's coming under the judgment of God. And here's how that ends. Here's how that pride ends for Babylon. Not well. He's saying, don't hitch your wagon to Babylon. Look what happens, verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans. I mean, all this pride, what's it come to? It'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It'll never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No, no shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will dwell. Wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers. Jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. God will lay these proud nations low. In, in fact, that prophecy has actually been fulfilled. The prophecy is once he lays Babylon low, it'll never be inhabited again. That's actually true. Think about all we know of ancient civilization on all the archaeology we can do. To this day, we have no idea where the proud cities of Babylon were. Scholars don't even know if the hanging gardens were real or not. This ancient wonder of the world can't find any evidence of it. There's some evidence of parts of perhaps the Babylonian civilization. We have no idea where the palaces were. Wild animals and jackals was given over. Now, proud nations often, of course, are led by proud leaders. Babylon had these leaders who basically said, I'm as good as God. And so skip over to chapter 14 and drop down to verse 12. In 1412, this is sort of a, I guess a taunt is the word my Bible uses, but this is what's going to be said to these leaders that thought they, were, they had such influence, they, th they thought they were untouchable, they had such power. He says, look at them and say, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and make myself like the most high. Now, you may recognize the language here. Some Bible students believe that these verses are applied to none other than um, Satan when he fell from heaven. You hear that? Oh, oh day star, oh, Lucifer, right? You're the, you, you said, I want to be above God, and that's why you were fallen. Now, I don't believe these are applied to Satan. These are applied to an ancient Babylonian king and all his pride, but I don't press the point too far. Why? Because they very easily could be applied to Satan. Why? Because all pride 
at its root is satanic. Let me say it again. Every ounce of human pride at its root is satanic. Why do I say that? Go back to Genesis 3. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to basically say, God, we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want you to be God. We want to be God. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. Well, how did that go for the devil? How did that go for the ruler of Babylon? Look at verse 15. You're brought low to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who didn't let the prisoners go home? And so is the fate of every proud tyrant who won't humble himself before God. So Israel, people of God, Isaiah saying, look, this is what's coming. Don't hitch your wagon to Babylon. She looks strong. Her cultural influence looks so mighty. Her leaders look strong. But look at verse 22. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. Isn't that something that's personal? When God sees human pride, he deals with it personally. He won't abide it. Over and over and over in Scripture, what do we see? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'll cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. Verse 23, and I will make it a possession, y'all, of the hedgehog. I'm not real sure what that means, but I'll tell you this. If everything you've ever worked for your whole life is going to a hedgehog, that ain't good. Your legacy, your Babylon, <laughs> property of the hedgehogs. You mean I put all this money in a hedge fund? No, dog, hedge dog. Hedgehog, whatever. The point is it's not good, right? The image here, it's jackals and hyenas. It's going to waste pools of water. What am I going to do? Sweep it with destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, what is the application for the people of God? Don't trust in Babylon. It's not going to be the, the salvation, the glorification you seek. What is the application for us today? It's the same thing. Security is not found in human pride, in human self-glorification. Trust him. Are you going to build your kingdom? Are you going to make a name for yourself like the Tower of Babel? Or are you going to trust everything in your life to God? You are banking your eternity on these crazy promises. The people around Israel were like, are, are you sure you want to trust Yahweh God? Wouldn't you rather have all these soldiers, armies, chariots, horses, money, arms, all, walls? They said, no, we want to trust this invisible God. Do you realize how crazy that sounds? Christian, do you realize you're banking all eternity on the fact that a dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of a grave? Do you realize how crazy that looks to the world? You're putting all your trust and your security in that, which you can't see? Yes. Now, how do you know if you deal with pride, issue of finding your, your security in, it's like if I could just have that, if I could be on the inner circle, oh, if I could be in Babylon, if I could just be, you know, it's almost like uh, people talk about how like popularity contests and cliques and stuff, we usually talk to it with kids, you know, elementary school and middle school, sometimes in high school, popularity contests, cliques, what we don't tell the kids is this terrible secret that that doesn't end at high school. And that adults struggle with that their whole life. Yeah, how do, how do you know if you struggle with this? Well, I suppose you know, one way to know would be this. Do you find that you are two different people based on the group of friends you're with? 
So you'll be one person when you're with this group. Why? Because I just want to be in. I, wanna, I don't want to be seen as old-fashioned. I don't want to be seen as on the wrong side of history. I, I don't, I, I'll say what I normally wouldn't say, and I'll be silent when I normally would speak. I'll be who you need to be. Why? Because my security is, if I only had this, if I had their approval, I'd have this. And then when you're with another group of people, you're a totally different person. Why? Oh, because you're trusting in Babylon. You're saying, I need that influence. I, need, I care more about the approval of this group than I do about the approval of God. That's trust in Babylon. Listen, I can preach on pride all day. I know it well. It can happen in a pulpit. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. So on a Sunday morning, what if I preach a sermon and I say, oh, look, I did this so you could see what a great sermon it is. See, wasn't this a great sermon? Wasn't it good? Communicate it. Didn't, I didn't miss any verses. I didn't, I didn't Right? Or in humility, do I consider others better than myself? Say, I love these people. I love God, and I want them to be fed from your word. How quickly we go from love to pride. And I'm not doing this for his kingdom. I'm doing this for my kingdom. Oh, how quickly. Boy, this will take you back. But in 1996, maybe, circa 1996, DC Talk came out with an album called Jesus Freak. And there's this one song on the album where, as a Christian musician, I thought he nailed it with one line. He says, is this one for the people? Is this one for the Lord? Or do I simply serenade for things I must afford? You can jumble them together. The conflict still remains. That's it. Here is a Christian music artist. He goes, am I doing this for my fame or for his? And, and to wrestle with that. Um, anyway, 90s Christian music just comes to me, so bear with me. That's not part of my notes, so I'll have to find where I was. Uh, DC Talk got me off the, uh, Okay. What are the modern towers of influence? You know, you build a tower of Babel, and here I'm preaching on Babylon as culture and pride. What are the modern monuments to pride? I thought about this. You know, years ago, if you had all this pride, you would build a castle. You'd build a legacy. You'd leave a library. You'd have, you know, what is like a modern tower to pride? And this is what I think it is. You know what I think it is? I think the modern tower to pride, the modern way of self-glorification <clears throat> is influence. Influence. That's the modern like version of building a castle, isn't it? Dude, do you know how many Instagram followers I have? Do you know how many people follow me on Twitter? Do you know how many times I chat the snap at others? Or however it works, right? Do you know how many, right, that you're building that influence? Oh, listen, there's nothing wrong. I'm not, this is not a sermon on social media. This is not about that, but, but don't, like, Come on, if that's your security, if that's your hope, if you're losing sleep over whether someone likes, don't you realize, how is it going to look when you stand before the holy God of the universe, are you going to impress him with how many Twitter followers you had? Oh, every one of those Twitter followers just going to the hedgehog, they wiped away. Don't trust in Babylon, don't fear, and don't fear Babylon, don't orient your life there. Babylon won't get you there. Babylon won't do it. It's pride and its day is coming. Okay, so if Babylon does it, what about, what about Egypt? What about in Egypt, the self-made? In Babylon, the self-glorifying? No, it's going to the hedgehog. All right, what about in Egypt, the self-made? Turn to chapter 19. Now we're making some progress. If you're keeping score, I think I skipped over Moab, Philistia, and the Syria-Ephraim alliance. What about Egypt, the self-made? Go to chapter 19, verse 1. Well, Egypt has some good things going forward. I mean, Egypt looks like you could trust in them. They, they, maybe our security is found in Egypt. After all, they got three things. They got their gods, they got their river, and they got their wisdom. They got all these idols, right, a pantheon of gods, 
they got the Nile River, and they got this wisdom, this culture, these libraries, all this excellence. Okay. So it's God who stands against each of these in turn. Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Ah, the idols are powerless. They can't hold. And what happens? When this nation turns to idols, look what naturally happens next. Verse 2, and I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Pause there for a second. This is a word for our country, y'all. What happens when a nation rejects God and turns to idols? What naturally happens? That's verse one, they turn to idols. What is the verse two of that? What follows? They begin fighting each other. We have a nation torn apart, fighting each other. If a nation's gonna continue to reject, reject God and turn to idols, and making an idol of your ideology, making an idol of your, politi- your politics, making an idol of anything, of wealth, what happens eventually? Americans are now turning and fighting. Americans, neighbor against neighbor, city against city. That prophecy was fulfilled, by the way. Egypt eventually broke down. No longer could pharaohs control all of Egypt. They, they became these city-states that would often war against each other. Verse 3, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. I will confound their counsel. They will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers, the mediums, the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them declares the Lord God of hosts. That verse is chilling. If you think about it, when God says, I will give over the Egyptians, um, here they've chosen idols, that's a scary thought, that you can reject God enough. I don't want you, I want these idols. I don't want you, God, I want these idols. You can do that enough that a God eventually does what? He gives you over to your choice. Okay. You don't wanna serve and worship me? You serve and worship these idols? Y'all, that's chilling. That that reminds me of Romans 1 where it says eventually people spiral so far away from God that God did what? God gave them over to their shameful passions. Like, the fact that you, you reject God enough, God says, okay, well, here's the deal. Idols, listen to me, idols always lie to you. They always promise one thing and they give you the opposite. They promise, and whatever idol you make, when, when an idol says, I'm gonna give you freedom, it in fact enslaves you. Pick any example of this, but when you're given over into the hands of idols, they in fact become a hard master, a fierce king. Take any example you want of idolatry and that happens. You become enslaved by that. Any, okay, let's back up, an idol is anything or anyone you trust to save you other than God. An idol is a counterfeit savior. You're trusting in this to give you that security, that deliverance. Oh, if I only had this, if I only had that. You're longing for that. That's an idol. If it's not God, if that's the thing you're trusting to save you. Now watch this. Any idol you choose will eventually, if it's not God, will become a hard master, fierce king. Take money. Okay? So you're in a pandemic, and... uh recession, rumors of recession, you're looking at the stock market and you think this, I need, I need more money. And I wanna be the kind of person who has so much money, I have true financial security. By the way, always there should be, every, I'm all for financial security, that's fine. There should be a red flag that goes off in the mind of every Christian when they hear that phrase. I'm not saying you shouldn't go for financial security, I'm saying there should be something that goes, eh, what do you mean by that? Because some people mean, I wanna be protected against all eventualities. I want so much money in the bank that I'm recession proof and I'm pandemic proof and all, no matter what goes on, I've got so much. So you make 
little by little, you begin to put your trust in money. You put your hope in money. Money looks like it can deliver. And when you do, when you make money your idol, it becomes, instead of promising you that freedom and that financial security, it becomes what? A hard master and a fierce king. Why? Because it always wants more. It's a little more. How much do I need to be safe? A little more. But what about now? A little more. A little more. And it's relentless. And the next thing you know, you've become a slave to that, to that thing that you were trusting to give you freedom. Every idol does that. If you make your idol youth and beauty, this culture worships youth and beauty. And so you do everything you can to strive back, to turn back the clock. If your idol is youth and beauty, if that's your God, that God pours out its wrath slowly, year upon year, and wrinkle upon wrinkle, that God pours out its wrath. And you find that what was supposed to give you this freedom, this idol doesn't want to hear about aging gracefully. It doesn't want to hear about Christians who are renewed inwardly day by day. No, it says you've got to have that. It becomes what? A hard master and a fierce king. Okay, so idols no good. What about, what about, let's do this quickly. What about resources, natural resources? I mean, Egypt's going, well, fine, but we got, hello, we got the Nile River. Like, it's such a big river. In parts of the Bible, they call it a sea. Like, that's a natural resource. And as long as we've got that, the economy keeps flowing. There'll always be fish. There'll always be irrigation. We can grow the cotton. We're good to go. He says, okay, I'm glad you brought up the Nile. <clears throat> glad you brought up denial. Verse 5, and the waters of the sea that you're so proud of will be dried up. The river will be dry and parched. Its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Uh-oh. As the Nile goes, so goes Egypt's economy. Everything depends on it. Look, look at the dominoes. The fishermen mourn and lament. All who cast a hook in the Nile, they'll languish who spread nets on the water. It no longer sustains for food, and it can't irrigate. Verse 9, the workers in comb flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton, you've heard of Egyptian cotton, this fine export, can't irrigate it, no Nile. And that means that the pillars of the land will be crushed. So the big cotton, you know, the big industry goes down and has to fold, which means what? The blue-collar wage earner is out of a job. That's the last part. All who work for pay will be grieved. Yeah. The Nile is a fine resource. Oh, and you're putting your trust because you've always got access to the Nile. It's a free-flowing source, but you have forgotten who keeps his hand on the spigot. You've forgotten it's God Almighty who controls the flow of the Nile. And God can turn off and on the waters of the Nile just as easily as I can turn off and on my garden hose in my backyard. In fact, mine's actually a little tough. God does it much, he, no problem for him. And here he shuts down the entire economy of a nation just like that. So you're proud of your gods? They're nothing. They're a hard master and a fierce king. You're proud of your Nile River? You forgot whose hand's on the spigot. Oh, but what about our wisdom? What about our libraries? Well, that's the, okay. Okay. Let's talk about that wisdom. How are Egypt's Dr. Phil's and Oprah's doing? All right. Verse 11. The princes of Zone. These are their scholars. They're utterly foolish. Foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. Y'all. I tried this week to find an illustration. I tried to find someone who is supposed to be scholarly and give good counsel instead saying something foolish. But you know, the sermons are only so long, and you <laughs> I mean, where do we begin, right? I, uh, would this not be too difficult to illustrate that those who are supposed to be wise in the land, that scholars are in fact giving foolish counsel? You read the news? 
I read the news. I literally read the news. I read it in a newspaper form. It's, uh, uh, for those of you younger, it's like, um, it's what we had with like landlines and, and personal checks. Anyway, it's a weird time. The point is, I read it cover to cover in like my recliner, and the best part of reading the paper that way is at the end, there's always comics. And so like, I always end, you know, I always end happy. Um, and yesterday I was reading it, and there's this one comic, and it's, the, it's these two old guys, and they're sitting at a table talking, and one of them says, hey, I just, I just downloaded an app that can instantly detect which one of my friends is a moron. And his buddy looks at him and was like, what? That's, that's amazing. What's it called? He goes, Facebook. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not picking on, that was pretty funny. I'm not picking on social media. But we expect more from our scholars, don't we? We expect more from the princes of zone. And what do you get? When, the, when a professor at Harvard, or professor at Harvard, right? Are these not the wisest? This is Harvard. What happens? Uh, he, he recently, on May 21st, he made a comment about evangelicals. He basically said because they care so much about heaven and the afterlife, they actually don't care and they devalue earthly life. This is, I'll read, it's since been deleted, but here's the tweet, here's what he wrote. Belief in an afterlife is a malignant delusion since it devalues actual lives and discourages actions that would make them longer, safer, and happier. Folks, there's only one word for that, and it's a biblical word. <laughs> That's stupid. And kids, I know you're not supposed to say that word, but just, it, you know, in this case, in the Bible, I think there's no other word for it. So how can you say, look at the next verse, how can you say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, son of ancient kings. Okay, where are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zone have become fools. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion. Is there not a spirit of confusion in our day? And they'll make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in its vomit. That doesn't mince words. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Wisdom of this world will prove empty. Here we go. Don't trust Babylon. It's going to the hedgehog. Don't trust idols. They're cruel masters. Don't trust in the Nile. God has his hand on the spigot. Don't trust in the wisdom of this age. It's foolish counsel. So, there you have it. Except, no matter what, when you end a sermon, you try to end on hope, and I'm sitting here going, where's the hope in this thing? And then what happens next, what happens next, y'all, is utterly, utterly unexpected. There's no way to explain what happens next. In fact, I, I, full disclosure, I had no idea this was in the Bible until I prepared for, for this message. What you expect next, go to verse 19. So he's judged the people, he's pronounced all these judgments, and then what you expect next is, so that's it. Goodbye, you're going down. That's what you expect. So Egypt will be, you know, burned to the ground or whatever. Look at what he says. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and will deliver them. Oh, I thought he was going to do that for the people of God. Yeah, I didn't know he was going to do that for the, yeah. Yeah, verse 21, and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they'll make vows to the Lord and perform them. Wait, what, what, what? This is supposed to be the ancient enemy of Israel. God's supposed to destroy Egypt in order to protect. Here he is saving Egypt. 
And the Lord will strike Egypt, verse 22. But look, striking and healing. And they'll return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. We knew God did that for his own chosen people, Israel, that he would occasionally strike them in order to wake up, call, and... But we didn't know he did that for the nations. God's final word for Israel is not judgment, it's hope. And God's final word for the nations is hope. Look at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria will come into Egypt, Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians? Do you realize how mind-blowing this would be for an ancient Israelite? to hear His ancient enemies, Egypt and Assyria. Yeah, you're all going to be in a, a, a worship team together. In that day, verse 24, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, now picture you're an ancient Israelite, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Y'all, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't just do it for this, this chosen tribe of Abraham, for the nations. With my own eyes, I've seen this prophecy fulfilled in part. In part, two thirds to be exact. I was at a fall retreat in somewhere out in New Jersey or something. We took our church out there in, in, from New York, and uh, there, teaching the Bible, was one of the. He is to this day one of the finest Christians I've ever met in my whole life. He's from Egypt, he's an Egyptian American, right? And uh, his his roots, his family, all go back to Egypt. And there he is, sitting right there, and right next to him, I can picture this in my mind's eye, right next to him was uh, someone who uh, is of a Jewish faith, a completed Jew, right? And here, uh, uh, this person is seated, and there they are worshiping together, a child of Israel and a child of Egypt. And I thought, all I need is an Assyrian. And we would have this completed in full. Isn't that amazing to think about? Egypt, Assyria, Israel, worshiping together. We're going to pray here in just a minute, and I want you to be encouraged this morning that you cannot trust in Babylon the proud, you cannot trust in Egypt the self-made, but instead you can trust in God the sovereign Lord. How? Well, we, uh, we'll, we'll continue this message next Sunday, but I want you to see that in the next, uh, what's coming next, uh, uh, Isaiah is told to do this crazy thing by a prophet. He's told, to, um, he's told by God to march around for three years completely stripped, humiliated. He's stripped and barefoot. And he goes around for three years preaching in this way. And he's trying to show the nations, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be taken off into captivity unless you turn from idols and turn to God. And God calls him, my servant Isaiah will be humiliated and stripped because of the idolatry of the people. But then 700 years later, follow me here, God would send his true servant, a true and better Isaiah, and he would send Jesus of Nazareth. And what happened to Jesus? He lived a perfect life, and he never bowed to idols. He never sought his security in anything but God. And he was what? He was stripped and humiliated at the cross, and he died there naked to cover the shame of every one of us who've ever turned to idols. And the reason we can turn from idols and trust in God is because of our sinless, spotless, substitute Savior, he died and took on our shame. He bore the shame we deserve so that, as 1 Corinthians says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will never be put to shame. You can't trust in Babylon. You can't trust in Egypt. 
trust in him alone this week. Let's pray. God, we ask that you grant us the faith, grant us the grace to trust in you. Lord, to move, to transfer all of our trust to you, whatever it is that we're trusted in this morning, that we would find our security in you and you alone, and we would not feel this need to be influenced or to be an influencer, but to trust in you, oh God. And not to look to pride, but to humble ourselves, to be obedient unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so glad you were here today. I uh, uh, look forward to continuing this. If the Lord allows, uh, next Sunday we'll go through. The message will be the same. Where is security found? I hope you don't miss it. God has a lot to say in the remaining chapters. Before Pastor BJ gives us our instructions for um, our benediction and offering, God is on the move and he continues to move in our midst uh, as has happened the last couple services. So too too today, uh, we have some new members joining, Jim and Virginia Hedrick. And their photo, yeah, many of you will recognize them. You know them well. Uh, I have not yet... Uh, uh, been able to get to know them, but we had a good phone conversation. Many of you know because they were members here at Coleman First Baptist, uh, 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 have been in the past and have been faithful in ministry. God God has uh, moved them away and now seen fit to bring them back to unite membership here at Coleman First Baptist. So I got to talk with uh, Brother Jim on the phone, and what a great conversation. I asked him point blank. Now, are you certain of your salvation, right? Do you have assurance of salvation? Are you born again? He said, sure enough, yes. Are you... um, uh, have you been baptized? You and Miss Virginia baptized by immersion? Yes. And are you ready to commit uh, to Coleman First Baptist Church? In this case, recommit and uh, rejoin and yes, excitedly. And so we've been, during this pandemic, we've just been putting the photo up here and uh, they're worshiping with us online today. And so Jim and Virginia, welcome. We love you. If you are excited as I am and ready to receive Jim and Virginia into the full membership of Coleman First Baptist, then we have work to do. Members, if you rejoice with me, then make your vote known by raising your hand or typing into the chat box. Raise your hand or typing, say, praise the Lord. You ready? One, two, three. Praise the Lord. There you go. There you have it. And an overwhelming majority there. We welcome Jim and Virginia and all those who have joined during this crazy time. I can't wait until we can have a reception for all these new members and we can hug every last one of them and shake their hand and let them know uh, how excited we are that God is growing our First Baptist family. All right, Pastor BJ. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Tom. Would you stand your feet all across the room? We'll have our benediction offertory. To my right, your left, these three doors here are going to be our exits uh, immediately following our benediction. You'll notice some offering boxes there uh, made available to you if you need those. Our benediction is going to be Psalm 119 today. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to material gain. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless and give me life in your ways. And all God's people said, amen. We love you. Have a great week.